You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Explorers. This is part four in our series on the legendary Christopher Columbus. Today, we are going to cover the latter half of his second voyage to the Americas, which took place between 1493 and 1496. Let us do a quick recap. Columbus had sailed from Spain in October of 1493. He had returned to the Caribbean, found some new islands, including Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, and Dominica, and then returned to Hispaniola. There, he would find his small fort, which he had built during his first voyage, in ruins, and all 39 of his men dead, killed by the local natives. Columbus, with 17 ships and 1,200 men, selected a new location to build a city, at a harbor on the northern shore of Hispaniola, which he called La Isabella. Unfortunately, things did not go well for the expedition. The tropical environment was hard on the Europeans, and the natives were restless, some of them in open revolt. A dozen of the fleet ships would be sent back to Spain in February 1494 to bring gold to the Spanish crown and make a request for more men and supplies. A month later, Columbus built a fort called Santo Tomas in the mountainous region of Hispaniola, which was where he was told the island's gold was located. In response, the natives, led by a cacica, or chief, named Canabo, went on the offensive against the Spanish. Columbus would dispatch 400 men under the command of Alonso de Ojeda and rout the Indian force of 2,000 that was assembled. Any pretense of working with the Indians was now gone, and Columbus and the Spanish made it clear who was boss. Those that resisted were killed. That pretty much gets us up to speed with our story. Columbus had spent five months empire building, and the results weren't particularly great. His Indian allies had left him, the island's population was openly hostile, and morale in the colony was low. Also, food was in short supply, and the gold he so desperately wanted was slow to come in. So, Columbus decided it was time to go exploring again. His goal was to head west and search out the elusive route to the valuable lands of China and India and the Spice Islands. If he could do that, it would make his struggles worthwhile. Columbus would depart from La Isabella on April 24th with three caravels, including Nina, which, as we noted in the last episode, was now called Santa Clara. Columbus's goal was Cuba, whose northern shore he had explored on his initial expedition. He harbored the belief that Cuba was a peninsula of the Asian mainland, even though the natives told him it was an island. A small fleet would reach Cuba on April 29th. If you look at a map of the island, the easternmost location is like a point. That is where Columbus landed. From here, he could go northwest and explore the northern shore of the island, 
which he had done in 1492, or he could go southwest and explore the southern shore. He chose the latter. By the way, I encourage you to go to explorerspodcast.com, where I have posted a map of Columbus's sailing route. In Cuba, the small fleet would be greeted with open arms by the Taino Indians of the island, a nice break from the last few months of suspicion and conflict on Hispaniola. The natives would come out and greet the fleet, trading food, such as cassava bread and fish, as well as gold, for beads and bells and other trinkets. When he asked about the gold, Columbus was told of an island to the south, where it was found in abundance. I also want to remind everyone that Columbus had interpreters with him, so communicating with the Taino Indians was not that difficult compared to the previous voyage. The three ships would sail southwest along the Cuban coast, reaching what is now Cape Cruz, the southernmost point of the island. From here, Columbus would break off from Cuba and head south in search of the island he had been told about by the natives. He would reach his destination on May 5th, making landfall on the island of Jamaica, about 90 miles south of Cuba. He had arrived at what is now called St. Anne's Bay. Here, he would find large and prosperous settlements. However, unlike in Hispaniola and Cuba, the native Taino Indians acted aggressively toward the Europeans. They sailed out toward the ships in their massive canoes, some of which were said to be nearly 100 feet long and 8 feet wide, and they threw javelins and stones and shot arrows at the ships. Columbus responded with a volley of arrows from his crossbowmen, and the natives quickly headed back to shore with several dead and wounded on their hands. After that, the two sides struck up a tentative peace and traded, the Spanish taking on food and water, but no gold. The three vessels would next head west along the Jamaican coast, coming to another village about 15 miles from their original landfall. Here, the natives threatened the Europeans yet again. Columbus responded by sending a boat of men ashore. A volley of arrows and bullets, plus a war dog, put the natives in retreat. As before, the two sides negotiated a peace, allowing for trade to begin. Unfortunately for Columbus, the Indians possessed little or no gold. The fleet would spend several days at this location, which today is called Montego Bay, allowing for Columbus to repair his ships, which were leaky. When ready, the Admiral would order the ships back north, reaching Cuba on May 14th. From Cape Cruz, Columbus went west along the southern shore of Cuba. In doing so, he would ultimately enter what is essentially a maze of islands and shoals and channels. The ocean, in fact, was so crowded with islands that on a single day, Columbus cataloged 164 of them. Now, while islands are interesting, this kind of thing was extremely dangerous as well. Islands mean lots and lots of shallows, which can hide rocks and shoals and sandbars, all of which can sink a ship. Also, the weather was frequently rough, with storms coming through the area almost daily. The ships were in constant danger of being driven onto reefs or rocks. On more than one occasion, Columbus reported the ships scraping the bottom of the ocean as they tried to find passage through the many islands and it was not uncommon for the ships to get stuck on the sandy ocean bottoms. This all made for a dangerous, even deadly game. The ships would eventually escape the islands and continue along the Cuban coast. As always, the fleet would land and trade with the Indians when possible, and they were always on the lookout for signs of gold, as well as information regarding the Chinese, who Columbus believed were nearby. Pushing west, the fleet would reach what is now the modern-day Bay of Pigs, which is famous as the failed location of the CIA-sponsored invasion of communist Cuba in 1961. Shortly after that, the three caravels would get lost in yet another maze of islands, these off the Zapata Peninsula. On May 20, 1495, Columbus reported that he had sighted no less than 71 different islands. 
Columbus and his ships would eventually make their way through the morass of islands and almost, but not quite, get to the westernmost tip of Cuba. Despite the claims of the local natives, Columbus continued to insist that Cuba was part of the Asian mainland. He did not dare admit to the world that he had not found Asia. But here, with food stores low and the ships in bad shape, they were infested with shipworms and vermin, Columbus decided it was time to turn around. And the truth is, Columbus was not doing very well either. He was essentially worn out. Years of hard living at sea were catching up to him. Add in a bad diet, insomnia, anxiety, and stress, and the guy was just wiped. On the return voyage east, the fleet sailed further away from the Cuban mainland to avoid the many islands along the coast. On July 18th, Columbus and his ships returned to Cape Cruz. However, the winds were poor, and instead of going towards Hispaniola, Columbus decided to head south to Jamaica. The fleet would reach the westernmost edge of Jamaica on July 22nd, then sail along the southern shore of the island, exploring and cataloging what they saw. The Jamaican mountains held, they speculated, gold. On August 19th, the fleet reached the eastern edge of Jamaica and took aim for Hispaniola. Unfortunately, storms would bedevil the fleet over the next few weeks, the ships getting separated twice, once for six days and another time for five days. Once he reached Hispaniola, Columbus had his three ships sail east, exploring the southern shore of the island. However, at this point, Columbus's health, which was already fragile, took a turn for the worse. Sources say that he collapsed and he was almost comatose. Without Columbus to lead them, the fleet elected to return to La Isabella. The three ships would continue along the southern shore of Hispaniola before rounding the eastern edge of the island and reaching La Isabella on September 29, 1494. A week in Columbus would find the colony he had started eight months earlier to be in disarray. The truth was that upon Columbus's departure back in April, the leadership in the colony had been ineffectual and fractured. One of the most disconcerting things that occurred was when one of Columbus's officers, Pedro Marguerite, would lead 400 men to a place called Vega Real, and there he would set up his own camp, pretty much daring anyone to try and tell him what to do. His men operated with impunity, taking gold and women and goods from the locals and killing and abusing them, as well as ignoring orders from La Isabella. These kinds of actions only angered the native people against the Spanish. These people, who Columbus had characterized as simple and easily governed, were not docile and they were not pacified. They were angry and enraged, and they were looking to drive the Spanish from their lands. Where war didn't exist, there was an uneasy tension. Canabo would assemble a large force and besiege Alonso de Ojeda at Fort Santo Tomas, but could not dislodge the Spanish and were forced to withdraw. Another cacica, Guantinguana, along with Canabo, were attacking Spanish scouting parties when the opportunity arose. In one ambush, Guantinguana killed ten Spanish soldiers. Thus, with some of the Indians encouraging open rebellion and the undisciplined Spanish troops inciting the populace, the island was ripe for a major conflict. On the good side of the coin, a four-ship relief force had recently arrived from Spain, led by Columbus's brother, Bartholomew. A quick note about Bartholomew Columbus. He was the younger brother of Christopher and had a reputation as being wise and even-tempered, as well as a good mariner. He would be a quality and trusted asset to his brother. Bartholomew Columbus had left Spain on August 16, 1494. He had brought with him much-needed supplies, as well as men, but also he had brought to his brother instructions from Ferdinand and Isabella. Remember, Columbus had basically been sent off a year before, and this was really the first news he had received from Europe since departing. Now, it's important to recall that 12 ships and many men had returned to Spain in March, 
Some of these men had been disenchanted with Columbus, and they did not try and hide their anger and bitterness when they reported to Spanish officials. These men would stoke a growing anti-Columbus movement in the Spanish court. With regard to the instructions sent by the king and queen, those orders would show a growing sense of impatience from Ferdinand and Isabella. They would push him to send word on the places he had claimed, the islands he had discovered, the size and locations of these places, the weather, and so forth and so on. Remember, Columbus, like many mariners of his time, was reluctant to give out such information to others. The more information he kept to himself, the more important he was to the crown. Without him, they lost his valuable knowledge. But Ferdinand and Isabella, as well as a growing element in the court, wanted answers. They had invested a lot in these voyages, and they wanted a return on their investment. Another thing the Spanish crown did was to propose that Columbus return to Spain to help settle trade disputes with the Portuguese. It was an innocent enough suggestion, but in reality, it was a subtle threat to replace him. The message was, do better, or we will find a new place for you. Now that he was back in La Isabella, Columbus slowly recovered from his illness, and he needed to show a profit to his monarchs. Thus, he turned to something he had been flirting with for some time, slavery. Turning the island's natives into slaves was a dicey suggestion. The church did not approve of such things, even if they tolerated it. Ferdinand and Isabella were vocally opposed to such measures. But that didn't stop it from happening. Originally, the idea was to capture some Caribs and transport them to Europe, but sources indicate that Columbus gave the go-ahead to capture up to 1,500 natives, and it didn't matter who they were, Carib or Taino, that was fine by him. When word spread about the Spanish slave raids, many of the native population fled inland to avoid being snatched from their homes. Of the 1,500 natives captured by the Spanish, 600 would be put to work on the island, a visible reminder to everyone that the Spanish were openly using slaves. 400 of the natives would escape and head back to their homes or to the island's interior, spreading word of the horrors that had been inflicted upon them. As for the rest, on February 24, 1495, roughly 500 natives were sent to Spain. Accompanying the slaves was Diego Columbus, who would represent his brother at the Spanish court. Remember, Columbus had had many accusations leveled against him by his enemies in Spain, and it would be his brother's duty to respond to these charges. As for the 500 Indians sent to Europe, 200 would die on the voyage across the ocean, their bodies thrown into the sea. Half the others were seriously ill by the time they arrived in Spain. Juan de Fonseca ordered the surviving Indians auctioned off. The entire affair resulted in a little profit, as most of the Indians would die before reaching the auction block, succumbing to illnesses and disease in the colder European climate. It had been a miserable and deadly enterprise. I haven't found exact numbers, but it appears that upwards of 90% of the Indians transported to Spain had died. If anything, it showed that trying to turn the Caribbean into a source of slaves for Europe was not economically feasible. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, in addition to the slaves brought to Europe, as noted, the ships brought with them Diego Columbus. 
As we have said, many charges had been leveled against Columbus. When Columbus heard the details, he was livid at the accusations, and he had thus sent his brother to answer them. In reality, the charges against Columbus were a mix of truth and fiction. Let's face it, Columbus was not a good administrator. He was incompetent at times, he was arrogant and a bully, he mismanaged many things. He could be cruel towards his own people, not to mention the natives. All these accusations had elements of truth in them. However, some of the more severe accusations were exaggerations or outright lies. He was not working for Portugal, he was not hoarding away copious amounts of gold, and he was not feasting on tables full of food while Spanish troops died of starvation. The Spanish crown would listen to all these arguments, both for and against Columbus, and understand that they would need to take action to improve the administration for their overseas empire. But before we get into that, let's head back across the ocean to Hispaniola. Columbus had recovered from his illness, and by early 1495, he was back to running the colony. The mutinous officer, Pedro Marguerite, had hopped aboard a ship heading to Spain, ending his month-long freelancing show. With that settled, Columbus decided he needed to put the rebellious Taino Indians in their place, and on March 24th, he set out with a force of 200 infantry, 20 cavalry, and 20 war dogs on a campaign against the natives. Also, the Casica Guacan Nagari would come to Columbus and work his way back into the Admiral's good graces. He was the only native leader to side with the Spanish. He would not provide Columbus with much in the way of military support, but he would be valuable, providing the Spanish with intelligence regarding the motives and actions of the island's other casicas. Thus, Columbus would head inland, intent on facing the growing rebellion against his authority. His brother Bartholomew was his second in command. The Indians would gather under the leadership of Conabo and assemble a large force. Columbus's son, Ferdinand, would later write the natives had an army of 100,000, but that was a huge exaggeration. A more realistic number was probably about 10,000. Ultimately, the two sides would meet, and a battle would erupt. However, despite their numeric advantage, the Indians were no match against the Spanish and their advanced weaponry and tactics. The cavalry were a terror to the native people, not to mention the arquebuses and crossbows, and the war dogs of the Spanish would prove to be highly effective. In the aftermath of the battle, it was reported that the Spanish hounds tracked down and killed more than 100 Taino Indians who had fled the field. After this battle, the natives would never really rally together in sufficient numbers, allowing the Spanish to attack and conquer them piecemeal. Columbus's campaign of 1495 was the pacification of the island, one casica at a time. It was filled with rape and plunder and slaughter. Canabo, the casica who had started much of this by burning La Navidad two years previous, would be captured by Alonso de Ojeda. The conquistador had met with Canabo under the pretense of negotiating a peace between the casica and the Spanish. Instead, Ojeda tricked Canabo into putting on some steel manacles, saying that they were decorative items worn by all the kings of Spain. When the Indian chief was secure, the Spanish grabbed the guy and hauled him back to La Isabella, a prisoner. Columbus would continue his campaign against the natives, gradually bringing the island under his control. He would order several more forts established to help maintain the peace, and then he would create a tribute system as a way to extract every ounce of gold and profit out of the island. No longer would the Indians voluntarily bring gold to the Spanish and trade. Instead, now the Indians were mandated to give gold to the Spanish. The system set up by Columbus stated that every three months, all natives 14 or older had to bring the equivalent of a hawk's bell full of gold to the Spanish. If the gold was not available, then 25 pounds of cotton was accepted. Failure to do so meant death. 
It was a humiliating system for the Indians. If they complied, they were given a copper or brass token to wear around their necks, a symbol of their servitude and shame. The problem with this new system was that gold was becoming harder and harder to find. The Indians were essentially forced to give up their livelihoods to try and meet their quota. They stopped farming and fishing, and in short order, the island's economy was in ruins. It was brutal. Soon there was no food, and a famine swept over the island, an island that had been self-sustaining for centuries. Then what happened next was even more devastating. Many of the Indians, facing starvation and servitude, elected to die instead. It is estimated that about 50,000 Taino Indians would die by suicide during this time. Instead of starving or submitting to the Spanish, they elected to kill themselves. Whole villages would do this, destroying whatever food they had to keep it from falling into the hands of the Spanish, then committing suicide. Columbus's biographer, Lawrence Burgreen, wrote the following, quote, It was an extraordinary act of despair and self-destruction, so overwhelming that the Spanish could not comprehend it, end quote. When Columbus arrived in Hispaniola in 1492, the population of the island was estimated to be 300,000. By 1496, it was down to 200,000, with half of the dead by suicide. A census in 1508 put the population at 60,000. By 1548, it was 500, as disease and illness finished off the last of the indigenous people. This is a legacy of death. It is why some people revile Columbus. He had found the New World, and if he had just stopped there, no one would hold that against him. But he had moved from explorer to conqueror in a few short years, and his subjugation of Hispaniola was the blueprint for future conquests of Cuba, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, and many other lands in the New World. We will talk about this legacy a little more in depth toward the end of the series, but for now, let's move on with our narrative. On August 5, 1495, four caravels arrived from Spain under the command of Juan de Aguado, As we had noted, there had been many complaints lodged against Columbus at the Spanish court, and some had called for the arrest of the admiral. They called him a tyrant and a liar and a murderer. But Isabella and Ferdinand weren't quite ready to do such a thing. Columbus still had his supporters. Diego Columbus had returned to Spain a few months before and argued the case for his brother. Diego and other supporters of the admiral said that he needed more time and men and supplies to accomplish his goals. The Spanish crown ended up splitting the difference in these arguments. They recognized that Columbus needed help, and that he wasn't exactly doing the best of jobs at running the new colony. They wanted to lie a fire under Columbus, as well as gather more information about their new empire. To that end, they sent Aguado to Hispaniola to investigate the charges brought against Columbus. It should be noted that Aguado was not seen as a friend of Columbus. He had been with the expedition when it arrived in the New World back in the fall of 1493, but like many in the colony, he had become disenchanted with Columbus's leadership and had returned to Spain in February 1494. Now he was back, and he had Columbus in his sights. Upon his arrival, Aguado would present new orders from Ferdinand and Isabella, orders that basically cut into his power. It was a humiliating experience for the proud admiral. He felt that he was being stepped on by his monarchs in the Spanish court. But there was little he could do. These were orders from Ferdinand and Isabella, so he bit his tongue, smiled, and went along with everything. As for Aguado, he would take note of the problems in the colony and began to hear firsthand the grievances leveled against Columbus. To be honest, this was probably a losing battle for Columbus. Men came out of the woodwork to lodge complaints against the admiral. They labeled Columbus an incompetent tyrant. 
In addition to all of this testimony, Aguado was finding damning material to send back to the Spanish court, detailing Columbus's failures. Food was in short supply, and the cost to get up from Spain was prohibitive. He noted that there were no crops, that discipline and morale were low, and that there was little accountability throughout the colony. He also noted the favoritism and nepotism of Columbus. Ultimately, as Aguado put together his report on Columbus, the admiral would realize that he needed to go back to Spain. Columbus had lost his standing in Hispaniola. Aguado's report would only bury him, and he needed to personally make an accounting of himself to the king and queen. Before leaving, Columbus ordered Bartholomew to construct a new city at the mouth of the Ozama River, which is on the southern shore of the island. The truth is that La Isabella's harbor was not protected enough from the storms that plagued the region. The new port would be called Santo Domingo, and it would become the oldest continuously populated European settlement in the New World. Today, it is the capital of the Dominican Republic. So, third time is lucky for Columbus when it came to selecting a site to build a city. Columbus would set sail for Spain on March 26, 1496, with two ships, including Nina, as well as 235 people and 30 Indians. Amongst the natives was the dreaded Canabo, who Columbus wanted to present to Ferdinand and Isabella. The return voyage would be slow for Columbus as the winds were unfavorable. He would land on Guadalupe Island on April 11th. It was the same island he had discovered earlier in his voyage. On Guadalupe, Columbus would get into a fight and defeat the natives. He would then spend nine days on the island, gathering food and water and firewood, all the while repairing his ships. The voyage back to Spain was slow. Most of the Indians, including the Casica Canabo, would die on the trip. Food became so scarce, there were even suggestions of throwing the other Indians overboard, a suggestion that was quickly shot down by Columbus. On June 8, 1496, Columbus and his fleet would sight Portugal. The two ships would then reach Cadiz, Spain on June 11th. Once in Spain, Columbus would present to the king and queen the fruits of his time abroad. He brought plants and trees and birds and animals. And of course, he brought gold as well. You could never have enough gold. Also, he would pronounce the island of Hispaniola completely subjugated, and he would inform his monarchs that the populace was paying tribute to the crown. Columbus also recounted the events of his voyage, detailing the places he had seen and claimed. He also refuted many of the charges brought against him, saying he had done the best job possible running the colony, as could be expected under the circumstances. However, if we are keeping score, there are a lot of black marks on Columbus's side of the ledger. There were many legitimate complaints about his harsh treatment of the natives and the Spanish. There were a few Indians to be counted as allies, and the natives were slow to convert to the Christian faith. Also, the continual fighting on the island showed that the Spanish were vulnerable. And let's remember, he had not found Asia. And finally, the gold that the crown wanted so desperately was not reaching their coffers. There are a lot of negatives there. But Isabella and Ferdinand, to their credit, recognized that this was a difficult situation. To control an island and its people was no simple thing, and the complaints and backstabbing from Columbus's enemies, they knew, were part of life in the Spanish court. But most of all, the Spanish monarchs understood that this new world was offering them a unique opportunity to build an empire. Thus, when Columbus requested to command a third expedition back to the New World, the crown would give him the go-ahead. So, that is kind of taking us to the end of today's episode. Next time, we will set sail with Columbus on his third voyage to the New World. Before we leave, however, I do want to take a little stock in what Columbus has done these past three years. This second voyage was dominated by the establishment of the colony on Hispaniola. In that, we find that Columbus was not particularly suited to running such an entity. He made countless mistakes and errors. 
He had lost the support of many of his comrades. He had turned the native population against the Spanish, something that probably would have happened to pretty much any European. And in the process, he had turned himself from an explorer into a brutal conqueror. And finally, he still clung to this desperate hope that he had found Asia. But Columbus had also opened up new doors. He had discovered many new islands and helped understand what sort of world was waiting across the ocean. He had helped plant the seeds of Spain's empire, even if it would cost many, many lives. In the end, the hope that Columbus had brought to the table would be enough for him to finagle a third voyage to the New World from Ferdinand and Isabella. And that, my friends, is how we will conclude today's episode. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.